that evening, Ben, her boyfriend, got a phone call from Angie. Ben heard a male voice in the background, and what he asked was, who is there? And Angie's response was, a strange man. And the phone went dead. Go law enforcement. Go law enforcement. Go law enforcement. Go law enforcement. The podcast that makes your law enforcement dreams happen. Welcome to the Go Law Enforcement Podcast, brought to you by GoLawEnforcement.com. I'm your host, Joe Lebowski. If you're looking for a job in law enforcement, GoLawEnforcement.com has the largest listing of law enforcement job openings. To help you get that law enforcement job you want and deserve, we put together a special guide for you. Seven inside tips to get a law enforcement job fast. You can get the guide for free just by going to JobTipsNow.com. That's JobTipsNow.com. Sheila Wysocki was a college student at Southern Methodist University in Dallas when her roommate was brutally raped and murdered. Twenty years later, Sheila embarked on a journey to solve that crime. Sheila, thanks for being on the show. Thank you for even asking me. I appreciate it. And you are a private investigator, is that right? I am. I am a private investigator um, in Tennessee and Texas. My understanding is you had a very unusual path that that got you into that. You were a a student at Southern Methodist University in in Dallas. That's correct. What was the the time frame on that? Um, I... Went to SMU starting in 1993, um, and then, of course, in 1994, um, I left school after my college roommate was raped and murdered. At that time, had your roommate, uh, had she moved off on her own at that time? Yes. You know, that's when we roomed together our freshman year, and then she got into sorority and decided to live off campus in a a condo. And can you talk through that tragic event? Sure. Um, So it was in October, you know, the height of um, football season, and Angie and a friend of hers decided to go out, and they asked another young man to go out that evening. So they, they went out and danced, and it was disco time, and just had a great evening. And then uh, when Angie came home, she dropped off Anita's, the girl's name, and it's public information, and then Russell. And then she ran by her boyfriend's apartment, which was about 20 minutes from her place. When she saw her boyfriend, she kind of just teased him about going out that evening and then went home. So um, that evening, Ben, her boyfriend, got a phone call from Angie, and her first words were, talk to me. And, of course, he was groggy. He had gone back to sleep, and um, he's, like, not really understanding what she was saying. And what was interesting about it is I believe she was throwing clues his way that she was in trouble, but she did not come out and say, I'm in trouble. But Ben heard a 
male voice in the background. And what he asked was, who is there? And Angie's response was a strange man. And then again, giving her, giving Ben clues, she said, isn't there a phone at Park at Market? Ben's response was, well, yes. And then a few seconds later, she said she had to go. And the phone went dead. And obviously her boyfriend then, I presume, tried to go to uh, to where she lived. Yes, he actually was one of the few people, he had graduated from college and he had a phone in his truck because he was, uh, you know, the head of a construction company. And so he kept calling her on the way to her condo and no answer. The phone just kept ringing and ringing and ringing. When he got to the condo, he knocked at the front door and the back door with no answer. He then got into his truck and drove around the apart uh, the condo, you know, plex and and then he drove over to Park at Market to see if she was there. And then he called the police. Can you talk about what happened your knowledge of what happened when the police entered into her uh, her condo? So Ben was standing outside. He told the police officer, it was a rookie and uh, a more seasoned uh, police officer, that um, his girlfriend wasn't answering the door and he feels like she was in trouble. So they went upstairs and they had Ben stand outside and the more seasoned detective or police officer went into the condo and a few minutes after you know going in there he said i found her and based on the way he said it ben said he knew it wasn't good what was the scene what was the indication of what had happened to uh, to angie what um it appeared based on the pictures and that i saw later was she was on the bed she was bloody all over. It looked like she um, was sexually assaulted, which was confirmed. And the knife wounds were so deep that her spine was broken and it looked like her heart had been um, cut out. And how did you hear about uh, what had happened to Angie? I received a call the next morning and um, I had just, you know, again, back then we didn't have cell phones. So I had gone to get my hair cut. I was walking in the door and a friend of Angie's and mine, it was a sorority sister of Angie's, called me and said there was an accident. She didn't say anything, but there was an accident. And of course, in my mind, I thought that meant a car accident. And I was like, so what hospital did they take her to? Is she all right? You know, those kind of questions. And, you know, my girlfriend was crying so hard. It didn't dawn on me for a few seconds. And I then I realized I, I asked the question, is she dead? And she cried a little bit harder. And so, of course, I knew. And through that conversation she was able to get you know the police want to talk to you you need to call down to the station and ask for this person and and life changed that moment 
Were there any suspects at the time? At the time, there were four. And um, they had narrowed it down, you know, as the process went on. They did uh, blood typing back then. Again, no DNA. Um, and they were able to eliminate two based on blood typing. The two that were left, uh, they narrowed it down to one young man who had seen Angie and gone out with Angie that night. And that's who they focused the investigation on. Were you involved? Uh, did the police ask you to, to be involved at that point? Um, so the detective at the time, he and I talked a great deal. And um, I was, I knew Angie's life, you know, very well. Um, at the time of Angie, Angie's death, I was doing errands for her. I came from a single mom household. And so, you know, money was very tight and I did things to, you know, get money. And so one of the things Angie had me do was do her errands and clean her place and stuff. So I had a real good feel of what's going on in her life. And so I was able to tell him, you know, when they asked a question, I could answer it. And I'll give you an example. Um, on the bed when she was raped, there was a plastic bag from a laundry service and they asked me and I think it was one of those tests how well did I know her where she got her laundry done well because I dropped it off and picked it up I knew and so you know they asked me where she got it done and I told them and then it went from there asking me another question and then you know basically asking what I'm hearing and talking uh, on the phone and I met with the detective and just kind of went from there. Did they ask you to meet with one of the suspects? As I remember it, yes. Here's how it came about. I was telling them I was very uncomfortable talking to certain people. And the detective said, well, who are those people? And so I named just a couple of people. And one of them was this guy. And he, he really dove into that. He goes, well, why are you uncomfortable? What makes you uncomfortable? And he goes, do you feel like he's not telling the truth? Do you feel like, you know, he's so it went from that moment of me saying, I'm just not comfortable. And he had a list of questions that I wrote down to ask him. And then from there, from our conversation, it went to, well, do you think you feel comfortable having dinner with him? Well, of course. And um, I had dinner with him. And afterwards, I met with the detective. And what was really interesting going back to my 20-plus self was – I was willing to believe that this guy did it because, number one, I was uncomfortable. Number two, um, the police believed it. And he was just he's he wasn't the normal type of professional I knew. Was this person the one that Angie went out with that night? Yes. So you had dinner with one of the prime murder suspects at the direction of the police, hoping that you could solicit some information from him. Correct. Were the police nearby in the restaurant or were you by yourself? I was by myself. And my presumption is, is that 
nothing really developed with those suspects at that time. Is that is that correct? With Russell, several things happened. They would take him down to the police station and question him. And when I talked to the police officer, or I'm sorry, detective, when I talked to the detective, he said that Russell had failed a lie detector test. Again, going back to my 20-year-old self, that meant he was guilty. And that his story was not matching with, you know, what happened that night. Um, he was saying he didn't, you know, even know she was dead. It was all over the news. Um, you know, and then he said that he lawyered up. And again, that's a reason to think he was guilty. There were so many things about Russell that made him guilty in my mind and obviously guilty in the detective's mind. So how many years passed before you decided that you needed to get back into this case? 20 years. What was it that motivated you to say, you know, I I need to find out who, who killed Angie? So I was laying on the bed doing the most miserable homework, and I look up. I can't explain it, but I saw Angie. That's it. And so that moment did not last, but maybe three seconds at the most. And it was a time stopping moment. And I knew at that second I was supposed to pick up the phone and call the Dallas police. And that's what I did. And where were you living at that time? In our home in Brentwood, Tennessee. What What were the biggest challenges in, in trying to be involved living in Tennessee versus the crime in Dallas? The biggest challenge was to get someone to even look at the case. Cold case division in Dallas at that point wasn't around. You don't want to have a phone call from some mom in Tennessee, honestly, and you don't want to deal with me. And um, it was very obvious they didn't want to deal with me. And I had called and called and called. I was told that the file was in a flood and all the evidence was gone. And then I was told it was lost, that they moved the, um, you know, records. And so every time I called, and I to this day don't know why I never thought, okay, I need to stop calling. I just kept thinking I need to call a little bit more. So when I finally got the what I call the kiss off, I thought, you know what, I'm I lived in a gated community. Um, obviously, from Angie's death, there were things that I like about security. A gated community is one of them. And I was talking to the head of security and telling them, you know, I was having trouble getting them to even listen to me or, or look at her file. And he goes, you know, you need to become a private investigator. <laughs> and so he said, I'll sponsor you. You'll be great. You can work with us. And that's where it began. When did your case pick up some traction? 2000. And that was 2004 when I started. Um, 2008. So four years later, four years of driving them crazy, honestly, Joe. And they gave me this wonderful woman uh, that called me and I was like, of course they have a woman calling to talk to me. And she was fantastic. 
She was a great police officer. She knew the case. She knew the file. And lo and behold, that file and evidence was there. What was the tipping point uh, in that case for you? First of all, they were still uh, focused on Russell. And they were going to be able to get DNA now. Because we knew that Angie had semen. And she had skin under her fingernails. And going back to that, I will say this. Shout out to the lady who did the autopsy and preserved all the evidence because based on the way she did it and the protocols she used, that evidence was as good as the day they got it. So it was very well preserved. They had the DNA. They were able to take that DNA and run it through CODIS. And that is the reason that they were able to match the guy. Who was that guy? His name was Donald Bess. He was a serial rapist. He had been on parole from a 1977 rape, and he was brutally, he brutally assaulted these women. Based on putting everything together, what do you believe happened that night? I believe that he spotted Angie. He had a, he had a way of doing things, and she fit his... Uh, profile and he knocked at the door he made sure he got in and he took a knife and got her off the phone took her into the room raped her Ben knocks at the door and based on the blood uh, splatter that it he had put his hand over her mouth to keep her from screaming and he kept stabbing her then he got up uh, when Ben left and basically took a shower, rinsed off, took the knife and a, a, one of the towels and walked out forever, left her dead on the bed. When he had been identified through the DNA as, as the prime suspect, was he still alive at that time? He is still alive. He was in jail for another rape. Did he end up being tried for this, this crime? Yes. In 2010, we got a conviction. He is on death row right now. And obviously, the prime suspect, the original prime suspect, Russell, was exonerated through through what you did as well. Yes. And his mother wrote me the nicest letter I've ever received, saying that the cloud of uh, suspicion it has been lifted off of Russell. How has this event change your life? Well, of course, initially it made me scared. Now it's made me stronger. And I know that you can do anything. I mean, you can, you can figure anything out. You just have to walk through the process. And now I help families walk through the process. And with your work as a private investigator, what types of cases do you really focus on? I take cold cases that um, I review and look at them to see if they can actually be resolved. And then we go through the process. Well, Sheila, thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Joe, for having me. If you're looking for a job in law enforcement, check out the largest listing of law enforcement jobs on golawenforcement.com. To help you get that law enforcement job you want and deserve, we put together a special guide for you. Seven inside tips to get a law enforcement job fast. 
You can get the guide for free just by going to jobtipsnow.com. That's jobtipsnow.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening.